Hello everyone and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Patreon episode 21. Once upon a time that our patrons were all legal to drink. Once upon a time <laughs> in the north. <laughs> you know who we are. You guys know who we are. You all know who we are. We don't have to tell you. I would be concerned if you didn't and you were here. Like very impressive. Thank you for being a patron if you don't know who we are. Uh, so I'm really excited to explore this story. It is a side novella by Philip Pullman set in our His Dark Materials world, and it covers Lee Scarsby and York Burning Sun as they uh, become friends and get into some mischief together. That's like the cutest part of the chapter. And yes, it is. As you all know, I didn't shut up about this novella after reading it, and when we were introduced to, of course, Lee scares me in <laughs> in the books and started talking. Or, when, or maybe it was the show when, when he came in. I think it was in the show. Honestly, I loved Lin-Manuel's uh, entire thing. I, I can see entire how thing. this Lee scares me is very similar to is that. I, I understand people saying that uh, the current iteration right of 59 year old mm-hmm. lee and now i'm like trapped saying lee scaresby lee scoresby is not quite like that but i can see this yeah i'm it is odd uh lee's 24 we'll talk about in this this is this takes place 35 years before main events basically which kind of actually sets a timeline i know in our first few his dark materials episodes I tried to figure out the timeline because I'm kind of crazy like that immediately. And Eliana was like, Chloe, that's not how this is going to work. They actually have an ink blot <laughs> over the year in one of those documents at the mm-hmm. end. So, Yeah. If you're tuning in, uh, our Subtle Knife Chapters 7 and 8 episode will be released this week as well. Yes, they will. And we'll be covering the Rolls Royce and another chapter. Did you all know that Rolls Royce is hyphenated? We'll talk about that in a bit. Not not, <laughs> not in this episode, though. But in our <laughs> upcoming patron episode, in our upcoming public episode on The Subtle Knife. Yes. Yeah, and you know, they recently did a tweet-along this past Sunday. They did kind of like a live His Dark Materials Ask HDM tweet-through. We did some retweeting of those kind of questions that popped up but there were a lot of really cool things that got said by different production members cast members from the tv show and apparently although covid19 has been a sucker a real jerk they are still releasing season two before the end of the year yeah and it sounds like they actually got greenlit and maybe they're starting pre-production on season three or something now so that's promising that means that they were able to complete everything that they needed to for season two so we're not only are we getting season two we're getting a complete season right because a couple of shows have had to split up or shorten the amount of episodes that they're putting out per season so that's pretty exciting and my understanding is that chloe you got some closure on a character yes uh apparently alice lonsdale a character in the story Uh, was included originally in the drafts for season one, but they cut her. They just had other characters like the librarian, for example, him and his husband, the master. Uh, And I say that not lightly because they did pretty much confirm they wrote it specifically that way. 
this week. Uh, Jane Tranter, I believe, confirmed that on Twitter. Which I believe but we yes, said. As they grew. Yeah, we did say it. So I'm just saying there was a lot of stuff that was confirmed this week. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff going on on Twitter. I was excited about that. The internet was like, okay, kind of, maybe. Uh, also, also this past weekend, for those of you who are following us for a Song of Ice and Fire content, Chloe was part of quite a few great panels. Ice and Fire Con, unfortunately, was postponed due to the pandemic, but very cool. They did a bunch of content, online virtual content with content creators and friends from the community. So I did one of the biggest panels I was on was uh, the Drunk A Song of Ice and Fire and Drinking Game of Thrones presents Season 8 Game of Thrones. What does it all mean? It was too spicy. YouTube shut us down literally five minutes before we finished. But we'll throw <laughs> it a link was up a for copyright that. It was a very fun time. It was really funny yeah. that they like stopped, right? Like, it, it just stopped. We literally about... I know. And the weirdest thing is, is that it is actually up in full on the channel, including when it said that it was copyright stop. We were behind uh... like the scene still talking and that's up. It's very strange. I think I, I guess maybe someone reviewed it later or something, right? And then they're like, um, I guess yeah. this is okay. So who knows how the how Because I did edit work. it is the funny thing. Like I edited every single clip. Yeah. I can see why they would have thought, uh-huh. but Oh yeah, absolutely. I should have gotten shut down like hours before that. Yeah. But <laughs> I digress. I digress. HBO's got strong lawyers yeah. and they do. You know who they else? Do. So in this in this chapter, actually, this novella, we meet a lawyer, Lee Scoresby. Yeah, Lee Scaresby, twenty four years old. He's traveling over the White Sea in his cargo balloon for the Barrent Sea Company Depot, looking for some work and some trouble. So we are going to be covering in this uh, episode about Once Upon a Time in the North all three of the books from the main trilogy. And we may very, very lightly mention a couple things in passing on some foreshadowing that we might come to see in the Books of Dust or things from Lyra's Oxford, but this will stick to the main three books. We get the famed origin story of his balloon. He won it in a poker game six months before and also won, with that, a half copy of Very Ragged, Very Torn Up, of the Elements of Aerial Navigation as well. We do get a page of the book to read much later on in this story, but I must distress because I don't do math like that. You know, I just don't. It's not going to happen. So I'm not going to talk about it or if it's smart or if it means anything. Maybe you can, Eliana, but it ain't for me. Yes. And yeah, so so from that book, I thought it was, A, first of all, really funny that we're seeing, as you pointed out, that Lee got his balloon six months before. I guess we always like kind of took it for granted later on in the books, right? Or in the book series. Mm-hmm. Everyone was just like, yeah, of course, he's an aeronaut. This is what he wanted to do. And it's like, no, he just won it in a <laughs> game. And was like, yeah, this is my living now. And didn't fucking know how to do it. He's just like literally in some ways winging it with half a fucking manual. And this is an interesting manual. It does not actually exist. I tried Googling to see like, did Philip Pullman base his like a balloon manual on a real older text? It is not. And there's some like hilarious footnotes in chapter six of the elements of aerial navigation, such as a one footnote. As a matter of fact, this is impossible. Uh, footnote number five in chapter six. 
Only a fool would suppose so. Who knows what that was supposed to refer to because we don't actually see where it uh, gets its attribution. But yes, as Chloe said, there's a little diagram here. And it. my understanding from what I remember of physics class that I took literally a decade ago uh, now and actually a little less than a decade, it does seem like it's mostly right uh, on a simplistic level. I'm sure there's like way more stuff that you can calculate but more or less like this mg at the bottom that is weight that's mass times gravity r pointing up right stands for like resistance and like and i think that these are all correct but also again i haven't really thought about physics in a long time i would like to point out that i got an a and i'm proud <laughs> of that i just felt good that okay i'm going to i'm going to say it i felt good that i got an a in physics majoring in like English literature and fine arts, and I did better than a bunch of the people doing, like, STEM or pre-med. I'm just saying. And now you do absolutely what? Nothing with it? I do this. You sit on a throne of lies, Eliana. <laughs> I sit on- I rest on my laurels. You rest on podcast laurels. I rest laurels. on my laurels. And that's- With the millions of money HBO and BBC hand us every month. All I need. <laughs> so lee is accompanied by his demon hester the best rabbit to exist and well maybe not a rabbit as we'll find out better than a rabbit but they crash land at novi odents roughly everyone is commenting on it and they also as soon as he lands everyone is all over him and they're like are you working for the big mining company taking over here larson manganese he actually gets asked this twice within like the first 10 minutes he has landed that's how you know it's important. Yeah, right. Uh, first at landing, then again at customs. And I I know that Pullman is pulling out a lot of, you know, Scandinavian names, different etymology. And I've noticed a few things from here. Odense is, in real life, a city in southern Denmark near the Odense Fjord. And it was founded in the 10th century. And it's actually the birthplace of Hans Christian Andersen. Huh. That is interesting. I knew the name from somewhere, and I was like, what is Odense? Odense is a city, I know that. And I just thought that was really strange. Odense. And there's a lot more, even, of this etymology I find, like, in Larsen Manganese. Uh, the first thing that popped out to me when I read this, because I did not read this until recently. This is the one I was waiting to read. Uh, manganese is one of the metals in the alloy in the subtle knife. Huh. Yeah, that was interesting. And interesting. There's also a Swedish professor of philosophy, a very famous historical professor from Lund. I have to pronounce it right. I told Lo that I would pr try to pronounce it right for them. Hans Larsen, uh, who was born in 1862, lived till 1944, was a famous Swedish professor of philosophy at Lund University, Sweden. And he had a doctoral dissertation on the transcendental deduction of categories in Kant. And I thought that was a really interesting couple different pieces he had besides that, because he spoke also a lot on anti-Semitism. Wonder if that has anything to do with it, especially with what we come across with some of the lore of the bears. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I didn't realize, you know, I, I knew that manganese is like a metal. I didn't realize that it was in the subtle knife. So I think that's such a great thing to call out, as well as all these other ways that it ties in with the ideas that Pullman is interested in. 
Yeah, because this was written far after The Subtle Knife came out. This was written, or well, published, sorry, in 08. Subtle Knife was published in 97. Um, But it's interesting to think that he may have had this in mind. And we're getting a lot of these different pages uh, in here. You know, we talked briefly about that one above from the Aeronaut book. And it does make me wonder, he went through and did the Lantern Slides in 2007 as well. So Hmm. a lot of this stuff is written kind of around the same time. I'm wondering, I believe it was 2017, those slides were added in and published. That would make sense because if it was published for the copy, I guess, that I have, or for that Mm -hmm. omnibus copy... Uh, I, yeah, I think the omnibus copy might have been the original, and then because that one this came after. Because I have the one with the pictures as well for for Once Upon a Time in the North. Yes, yeah, same. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, my copy of His Dark Materials has those lantern slides, and it is uh, I bought it. I I, I should check when that was uh published, but I bought that before a little before La Belle Sauvage came out because I was intending to read mm-hmm. it for. I want to say it was 2007 was when those slides were added to publishing. Oh, never mind. What I've researched. Never mind then. That that's but... way earlier. Mm-hmm. Now, and this was only so this was originally published uh, by David Fickley Books, which we'll get into, and Alfred A. Knopf Books also published it. So I wonder if that's the differentiation. Hmm. Hmm. Or if maybe it was just published at first, like as a side novella in a magazine somewhere or something. I'd be interested to find out that. Yeah, it could be. He was just like, oh, I have this idea. Right. And I mean, yeah, a lot of things get published like that. But then, anyway, yeah. fun stuff. I was chatting with our friend Lo that we talk about from time to time on the podcast about the flag. There's a navy and white flag flying from the roof. And it kind of reminds me of Finland's flag uh, or any of the Scandinavian cross flags and it has same colors as the Greek flag. And I actually went through and learned Iceland unofficially had a navy flag with a white f- cross hmm. on the field of navy. And it was unofficial. They had them from like 1897 up until 1915. And it was too similar to the Greek flag. So officials didn't approve of it. There's a lot of uh, culture that's painted, right, of how we get to understand Novi Odense. And uh, mm-hmm. some of that has to do with this legal body that we come up across very early on, the customs. Yeah, and they're really painted as bad guys, right? And maybe that's just because we're used to the government being the bad guys. Uh, but it turns out they're kind of good. Local government for the win, getting shit done. They're like, okay. They're yeah. okay guys. And yeah, yeah, it seems like a normal town though, right? Except for, I guess, the huge bears wandering around, which I might maybe that's normal. In the north is my understanding, based on his dark materials, like the main series, right? Uh, and we have this quote: "There was no mistaking the immense power in those limbs, those claws, that air of inhuman self-possession." There were more of them further into town, gathered in small groups at street corners, sleeping in alleyways, and occasionally working, pulling a cart or lifting blocks of stone on a building site. Uh, Hester notes that the humans are ignoring the bears; that they want to pretend that they're not there. I had a couple thoughts here, and we'll get into a little more of kind of this feeling of almost racial tensions between these people and the bears. It it feels definitely like times of desegregation, right, where bear rights are being considered at all 
for the first time outside of their homeland. It reminds me a lot of indigenous people and their lands being stolen. I don't know. There's something here we're going to go into later. But also, the way that they ignore the bears and want to pretend that they're not there, the wording kind of reminded me of specters for a second. Hmm. I just thought of this. Had to had to share. Dunno. Dunno. Yeah, except the bears are nice and fluffy and you could be right next yeah. to them and sleep next to them and cuddle you could them. Ride them. Like not like sexually, settle down. Leon <laughs> York! Leon York! Uh, everything is tense in this town and full of anxiety, so Lee does exactly what I would do, which is head to a bar, grab pickled fish and vodka. But he finds there's some sort of quarrel happening in this dive bar. And then he gets this breakdown from the bartender as the bartender, like, throws the shot down the counter, you know? Like, ah, yes, catch this, son. Because of course he does. Because I I don't know if this is, like, I'm not well-versed in this genre enough. And I keep meaning to do a deep dive and watch of it and then rewatch The Mandalorian. But I feel like maybe Once Upon a Time in the North is a play on the Westerns, right? Of course, like, we have our character Mm -hmm. Elise Scoresby. And then he's coming to this new town and at first they're like, oh, it's like kind of quiet, but not. It's like weird. Uh, it's not quite a ghost town, but you kind of get that sort of feel. And then, of course, Lee goes into a bar and then has a bar brawl. Like, of course there is. And then like much later on in the story, right, we get a shootout. And I, I don't know. It's kind of funny if it is playing on that. And then it's so explicitly in the title, like set in the north, like a it's the north, but in the west. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially when you get down to, like, the resource wars and... And even, like, the idea of, like, granted, of course, it's portrayed so much differently in Westerns, right? How uh, indigenous people uh, are portrayed, American Indians and so forth, but obviously very different people, but then, I guess, bears. But anyways, I also thought it was kind of funny how we already know how Philip Pullman characterizes places like oxford has like its core defining feature is academia right like that's their industry and how lyra sees it she's like yeah there were just like a bazillion universities and here when lee lands he's like oh yes novi odens there were like a billion different kinds of oil industries like fish oil other kind of oil <laughs> all these different kinds of like he's like fish oil seal oil and rock oil and then there was a tannery and a fish pickling factory right so it's just a yeah. very industrious place it's very different there's also something that i thought was going to be relevant but i i don't think it was like there's this rundown or a church or something where their patron saint is saint petronius and I thought, I was like, oh, maybe that means something. So I looked it up and I don't know, maybe Pullman is just like, I don't know, Petronius, Petrol, that that could be funny, but turns out it doesn't fucking mean anything. St. Petronius actually sounds kind of boring. Like he fixed the buildings and seemed like, okay. And then people made up like cool stories about him later on. And explicitly they're like, yeah, they just made up stories about this guy later on because I guess he was that boring. They didn't say that. I just find him kind of boring as a saint. No, I'm bummed now. I thought I was excited. Right? I was like, that was a great... That was a great catch, Eliana. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I caught nothing. Ugh. Just like nobody caught the stockfish. Anyways. Well, there's no St. Petrol after all, but there is a red-headed Dutchman at the bar who is uh, the one that's getting into a quarrel. His name is Captain Van Breda, 
His cargo is tied up, and they are not letting him leave the town with it. He seems to be accidentally getting into fights, frustratedly in the bar, like shooting himself in the foot, so to speak, uh, over and over and over again. Again? Maybe a trip in Westerns? I don't know, but I think Philip Pullman just loves this in general. He just loves having very drunk men get into fights in bars and then get kicked out of them, as I can tell from La Belle Sauvage. Oh yeah, the framework in this entire book is very much like La Belle Sauvage. Like, this entire time, all I've been thinking is how it's almost like a microcosm of a La Belle Sauvage story again, just in a different setting with a couple other characters. Not the same things at stake, but... Yeah. And also at this bar, we have a stranger. You know, we just meet strangers in bars. I guess that actually happens in real life. Whatever. Philip Pullman. Anyways, stranger in a faded black suit who turns out to be, and he's very excited to be like, I'm a journalist and poet named, I don't know, Oscar Sigurdsson? Sigurdsson? Sitting next to Lee? Yeah, I thought maybe it was Oscar Sigurdsson, but I wasn't really sure. I don't know. I have no clue. Lee is a Lee basically chit chats with this stranger. He seems up and up and knows stuff, and he's like, "Oh, let me buy you a drink." And of course, the guy's like, "Yes, the most expensive cognac." And Hester, like, and him are just like, uh, but they get to know about the dilemma going on in the room. Some other town news, like, there's a huge election for mayor that's going to be happening soon. Totally one sided, and then they also chat about being men of war. So this election is taking place between the current mayor, who sucks, and uh, this new guy, Ivan Dmitrovich Polyakov, who's running an anti-bear campaign. It reminds me of Leon Polyakov, the French historian, who's not a parallel here whatsoever, because uh, this guy is actually someone who wrote also a lot about racism and nationalism and anti-Semitism in Europe. He wrote The Aryan Myth, but I thought it was very funny that this guy is a total dick, but... The only Polyakov, really, that I know is Leon Polyakov, the French historian. I like how throughout this we're like, yeah, and I thought it was this thing, and then it's not like this person at all. <laughs> That's us, this episode. Yeah, and uh, we have this quote pulled out here. He noticed the other man's glance, which had strayed to the belt under Lee's coat. Whoa, Oscar. In leaning back against the bar, Lee had let the coat fall away to reveal the pistol he kept at his waist, which an hour or two before had done duty as a hammer. And a man of war, I see, said the other. Oh no, every fight I've been in, I tried to run away from. This is just a matter of personal decoration. Hell, I ain't even know... I ain't even sure I know how to fire this. Uh, what is it? Revolvulator or something. Ah, you're a man of wit as well. Uh, I actually want to call out that line which she says an hour or two before had done duty as a hammer because when they're in the balloon landing, he beats the crap out of the pistol like while using it to like fix things as they crash land. And so the pistol's like, not looking too good. So something to note, because it will come back at the end of the story. And it does feel consistent, again, with the portrayal that we get in the current Historic Material series. And I understand <laughs> the the movie version of Lee may be more similar to the books, but this Once Upon a Time in the North does feel a little like Lin-Manuel hitting, hitting the meter. In the balloon. Yeah, it definitely feels like there's more characterization. And Lin-Manuel did actually read that this book. So I see it. To put it out there. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get there, but the bill of lading speech is just too fucking good. It is so good. The cognac has an ad in the book. It's a label, Mont Julien, France, shipped and bottled by the Matei brothers of Thorshaven. Uh, I couldn't find much. I just wanted to see if this was like real. It might be based off of Louis Napoleon Matei, who he had an apertif wine named after his native cap course, which is a peninsula of Corsica that juts into the Mediterranean. It's a territory of France. Uh, it, I don't know. He, he had a bunch of craziness, basically, that he discovered beneficial properties of a certain tree bark in the Caribbean, and he brought it to cap course and blended it with local wine and fermented it and started adding different spices and then exported it across the globe. And it's not too far off from cognac. It's a spec- it's specifically like a type of brandy produced from distilled white wine, and it gets distilled usually using copper pots at least twice and aged in barrels for at least two years. So it's kind of a similar thing. I'm wondering if that's it. It's a it's a French merchant, so it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I think it could be something where he's just like playing on that as he does for a couple of things for this world. Yeah. Lee spends his money on Oscar's booze. He's out of money. Hester is bummed for him, and so is he. And the talk comes to the bears, finally. Yes, indeed. Worthless vagrants. Bears these days are sadly fallen from what they were. Once they had a great culture, you know. Brutal, of course, but noble in its own way. One admires the true savage, uncorrupted by softness and ease. Several of our great sagas recount the deeds of the bear kings. I myself am working, have been for some time, on a poem in the old meters which tell of the fall of Ragnar Lokison, the last great king of Svalbard. I would be glad to recite it for you. Nothing I'd like more, said Lee hastily. I'm mighty partial to a good yarn. But maybe another time. Tell me about the bears I saw out in the streets. So, as Chloe was noting earlier, there's quite a bit here with how the bears are being treated. And you've already started laying down some of that groundwork for the xenophobia that they're experiencing here. And you have a couple of ways that Pullman has been relaying that to us. I mean, of course, first of all, we all read like these three books. I mean, I don't really know why most people would pick up this novella if they hadn't read those other books, but... Whatever. Uh, You have Oscar boasting of basically his ingrained biases and stereotypes that he has of like the bears have followed by grace. And he's leading on that trope slash myth of what's called the noble savage. He even explicitly uses the terms noble, then a few words later, savage, right? Uh, And says true savage. And of like, oh, they were so much purer and better and closer to nature then. That's like part of it. That's part of that uh, stereotype. And it others the bears, right? As opposed to seeing them as a people, even though I guess side note, They are a people, but are they human based on the criteria of they should appear in the underworld and Lyra doesn't see them, but she sees like the Malefa and the Galavespians and I'm I'm unsure what constitutes as humanity, even but the bears themselves are like, we're not human. They're like quite proud of that, so I don't know. They they deserve bear rights, is the point, but regardless. Um <laughs> then you have this great moment here where uh Lee knows that Oscar is full of shit because he cuts him off and then also he says, like, I'm mighty partial to a good yarn. Meaning he knows it's a lie because later on within this same story he tells York, I need you to watch my back here because I'm gonna and he says spin a yarn, which is what he is referring to when he like says, like, I'm about to like go talk some bullshit about laws, so yarn means like, oh, 
this is bullshit. I would also like to say, do you remember when you tried to say that Lee learned from Lyra oh, that's a few true. Uh, chapters ago and I called your ass out on yeah. it? I was like, I don't know about all that. I'm just saying this book. Yeah. This book. <laughs> I, I think maybe it's more just like, you know, he's just one of her many real dads. He is. Him and Yorick do great parenting. <sighs> They're, I'm just saying, Chloe, they could be... <laughs> I know this is a controversial ship, and I will not apologize. Thank you for subscribing to my patron. Thank you for being here. You're already all bought in. I love that in this book, Lee ends up meeting a future king of Svalbard. So by hearing this great fall of Ragnar Lokasin, the last king of Svalbard, or the last great king, um, we come back and we end up finding out, like, in a couple books, you know, in a book, depending on how you want to talk about the crown, the chronology, uh, in a book, you meet Yorick, the rightful king, where this whole time we have this great yarn being told already. I don't know. Yeah. Something to think I kind about. of wonder, like, was Pullman going to make more books of the adventures of Lee and Yorick between, like, then and now? We do hear about other adventures in the books, I mean... Because right now he doesn't know that Yorick's the king. He's just like, hello, random yeah. bear on the streets, chilling, fighting. Well, this is a great intro to this question, too, because um, the work he's doing with his own map here, I did a little digging into mm. it. Uh, there's a map that came with Lyra's Oxford. If you, I think you have that or saw that. I have it with, somewhere. It's in series. Yeah, it's in series made by the Globetrotters, they're called. The and, Harlem uh, Globetrotters. A Globetrotter, you know a globetrotter, someone who trots the globe. It's a fake publishing firm that he calls Smith and Strange, but he, he put the address for it in the series as the same address as his real-world publisher, David Fickling. Hmm, that's cute. I thought that was cute, yeah. I like that. And the full list of the globetrotter publications, we've actually seen a bunch of them. Um, the Maps of the Kingdom and Clove Islands, Trade Routes of Muscovy, Empire of Peru, Electorate of Zimbabwe, but there are other books in series two that he says are included, like the Proto Fisher People, Proto Fisher People by Leonard Brocanero, uh, to the sensational true tales of adventures such as A Prisoner of the Bears. There you go oh, by Jotham Sandler. Hilarious. Uh huh. And I don't know if you ever noticed but this, but in the scene with Santalia, there's a book that's mentioned in the scene in the background called Fraud, An Exposure of a Scientific Imposture by P. Trelawney. I like that he- I never noticed that, and I thought that was hysterical. I just think it's great that he like went on to do this. Good for him. Yeah, right? Well, and so this is- you'll have to read this. There's a published John Hopkins journal by Pullman that talks a little more of these fun details- but there is a map of the known modern world from the Globetrotter series mm. that for Lyra, basically, that states that Muscovy, where this is supposedly taking place, has a town on the island of and called Novi Odense, where this is. And the description of Novi Odense and of the flags feels very Scandinavian, like it should be closer to Sweden or Iceland, but they're actually closer to Tartary, Kazakhstan, Turkey, and Egypt in this world, a little closer to kind of... I guess, Central Asia, which is interesting. No spoilers, but considering we know there are adventures in Central Asia in the Books of Dust that happen, wonder if it's related. Yeah, I don't know uh, much how they're related yet, right? Because, uh... So I, I think something that was interesting is, like, as you were pointing out for Novi Odense, and it take 
taking place and being in like Muscovy, right? And it being close to Tartary as we get in the appendix sort of like, or a clipping from an appendix of like shipping history that there is a Russia, Mm -hmm. there is, as you've pointed out, a Muscovy. And also there's a Tartary in Lyra's world right now. So there isn't like a larger, Russia is not as large as it is in our world, right? And there, there likely wasn't like a USSR it seems maybe, or like the Russia's not the superpower that it is in our world. It's split up into several different nations. And I mean, the USSR became that, like several different nations, but still, like Russia is, of course, still considered a large yeah. international power. And it is really interesting how they move Central Asia to be mashed into it. Yeah. Very interesting. And I mean, if we think about the Amber Spyglass with. Uh, the bears talking about possibly going to Central Asia and being able to survive there, that makes you wonder if this is a connection as well. Dusty three. <laughs> dusty two dusty, three, two furious. Two, three dusty, three furious. Yes. Oh my okay. God. So right now Oscar is also himself furious about bears, calling them vagrants and scavengers, drunkards. They lie, they cheat, they were great craftsmen once, able to work with any metal. Actually, they're still pretty fucking great, Oscar. Shut the fuck up. But now they only have crude armor, allegedly, and they're not allowed to wear it in town. They just want the bears mm, to be naked. That sounds right. Oscar's yeah, a pervert. Right. Well, I don't know. There, there's more. And that's actually something really nice, the the addition that he's all like, their armor's ugly. And then like Lee later is like, oh no, their armor's just perfect. It fits them well. Like He did a good job making his helmet. Wow, it's not ugly up close. And I thought that was a really nice metaphorical moment that we'll talk about later. But overall, I think this was definitely like a time of desegregation for the bears. But there's really weird framework here, and it is really confusing. I mean, when we get to Polyakov's speech, he speaks against and condemns these bears, their existence, their rights. But they seem to be before Polyakov in a gray area in this story Mm -hmm. with having rights outside of Svalbard. I imagine if Polyakov has his way or gets in office, he obviously will be causing more trouble for the bears and sending them on their merry way or not so merry way. It might not be done merrily, so to speak, that might be a little violent. There's like, there's no timeline for this. Like, are these bears just other pansierborn that chose to come here because the laws were maybe more relaxed? So, I mean, these are questions I shouldn't have to be asking out loud, though. Like, these are things he could have written. But. These are questions that I, I mean, I think they're valid questions. I'm not sure, and I ha- don't have an electronic copy, but I don't think I remember reading the word Svalbard in this book. Is Svalbard... It was just bears. Well, I'm just wondering, is Svalbard, like, were the bears ousted from these human towns and then set up Svalbard? Were they there already and was Svalbard set up or is it the opposite? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's something we should ask Philip Pullman. Because, but no, but here's the thing is because um, Oscar was just speaking as if it was completely, like, oh, they used to be great with metalworking and they once had a great empire and the last great bear king was Ragnar Lokasin. I just, like, don't know that Svalbard exists yet as its own, like, bear state yet or if, like, this was once a bear state and then humans moved in and then the bears are, like, forcibly displaced or something. Or if it's the entire... Yeah, exactly. I just don't know. And... It's interesting because they're solitary creatures, so that makes sense. But for a bunch of solitary creatures to choose this island as like their settling place, that's interesting. 
Um, and yeah, I don't know. There's a lot too. It reminds me of like how our country displaces the homeless by giving them a bus ticket to go elsewhere when there's too many bears, etc. You know, stuff like that. So yeah. I don't know. I guess maybe they just exist everywhere, and it's just that Svalbard is like their capital. Maybe. Which makes sense, yeah. but it, it, it just feels like maybe we could have some more details about the lore there. I mean, we we seem to learn about bears working with the GOB, right? Uh, That's true. As one-offs and mercenaries, like we hear about from Yorick. And we also hear that, like, Yofer selling out the entire bear troop, you know, to do a deal with Coulter mm-hmm. was kind of an ultimate betrayal on their level. Like, true. becoming human, the more human you become... Which great, you know, anti-parallels with Yofer and Coulter and Yorick with Lyra, obviously. I don't know. It's it's a thought. It's a thought. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, as you said, we don't have that clarity from Phil Pullman, unlike his opinions on, you know, how excited he was for the musical cats being turned into a movie. So I think that's something that he just like really needs to make clear to us. The bartender, like me with Eliana, has had it with the Captain Van Breda at this point from the beginning of the bar scene, and he interrupts Lee's discussion by breaking through, walking through it, and trying to beat Van Breda with a stick. But Lee sees what's happening, he gets up, he gets between them to break it up, and he gets himself thrown out in the process. He gets no thanks from the captain for it, who's drunk as hell, and Hester is like, wow, thrown out of somewhere within an hour. Interesting. He gazes around the town and he notes, you know, it's not very busy, although it's supposed to be teeming with business for oil. Yeah, we have a quote. On the first quay to the left, there were two smaller and barrack cranes. The first busy loading barrels of fish oil into the hold of one small steam coaster. The second unloading the timber piled high on the deck of another. Beyond them lay a schooner, at which no activity of any sort was going on, and Lee guessed that to be the unfortunate Captain Van Breda's vessel that couldn't load her cargo. Lee couldn't see anyone. Lee couldn't even see anyone on deck. The ship had a forlorn air. Uh, what a drizzle, like a very, like, just a sad kind of looking place, right? Like an empty harbor, basically, just four ships, five ships. Ghost town-ish. Yeah, very ghost town, right? You imagine the saloon doors swinging. Yeah, Lee getting kicked out and swings while he's on the ground. <laughs> he inquires with the harbor master, Mr. Agard, who has a cat demon and not so nice disposition. He tells Lee that business is bad and they only have four vessels currently as it is. Lee insists, though, that he counted five and Agard insists four. Van Breda's vessel is the one that's being unsaid. Obviously, something is up with this vessel at this point. He goes to a shop to see if he can get more info and snoop around, but the shopkeep is like, mm, no. And so he just leaves, doesn't buy anything. Goes home, gets back to the boarding house that he's staying at for dinner, and we meet some of the boarding mates for the week. There's a photographer from Oslo, an official from the Institute of Economics in Novgorod, Miss Victoria Lund, a severe, tall, skinny woman who worked in the library with a swallow demon. I love her. You're doing amazing. She is. She deserved better. Uh, Lee, like, tries to charm her. Like, I guess he's done with everyone, but his charms seem to fail here as well. He talks about books, asks her about her life, gets very short, terse answers, and then when she's gone, the men clap him on the shoulder and say, that's the most we've ever heard her speak. 14 words, or 15, depending on who was counting between the two men. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I've got a lot to say about Victoria's characterization, and I won't do all of it here. We're going to come back to some of it later, yeah. especially when we talk about Olga Polyakova. Uh, but 
It's mostly light and fluffy, the whole story, with some heavy Western action as we talked about up top, but when you analyze some of the finer bits of this story, like these side characters, Victoria and Olga, it can fall apart a little. Um, she's a woman, this is 35 years before the current plot, which is already pretty conservative how the characters behave, right? So it seems managing or running a library or working in a library is kind of a big deal, especially since even in the current canon we see so few women to men in general, especially in workplace environments. Mm-hmm. So these men are kind of being assholes, right? And harassing kind her of? as a game. Where Lee does it because he wants to learn about her. And when she puts up a refusal, of course, he's like, ah, I gotta keep going. Come on, I gotta get something out of you. But it was like differently framed for him how he wanted to talk to her. It was cruel sport for them, but Lee in general, I've noticed in here, and of course in the main series, deals in information, right? And her stoniness and these men being kind of assholes uh, made him be genuinely kind to her repeatedly. I would have liked to see maybe more develop than completely making inferences about it, but I think that's what Pullman wants us to think, right? He wants us to leave here thinking that. But I don't know. It's kind of this usual way that I've seen Pullman write these male characters that he has in the hero light. They get rewarded or saved by being nice to someone like this and it's kind of weird when we get to tomorrow morning in the story after she comes and talks to lee i'll probably have a little more to say too but hmm yeah uh, interesting we'll talk about it in the tomorrow morning i agree lee tries to rouse the remaining men into a card game but they're busy and you know lee scores me he's like but what about a second balloon a ship maybe he's like try my luck the economist asks lee if he wants to come to the town hall meeting with him, and Lee's like, uh, sure, that sounds good. There's a great deal at stake in this election, said the economist, whose name, Lee had learned, was Mikhail Ivanovich Vasilyev. In fact, it's the reason I'm here. My academy is very interested in this man, Polyakov. He used to be a senator, but he hates to be reminded of the fact. He had to resign over a financial scandal, and he's using this mayoral election as a way of rehabilitating himself. Hmm, we've seen politicians do that one before. Yeah, interesting. Big red flags. And yet, interestingly, not ruled out of this election for all of that. Also seen that happen. Anyways, he tells Lee about the <laughs> Larson Manganese men and that they will prosper if Polyakov, the, if Polyakov becomes the mayor. He says they're pushing for a confrontation with customs. We have a quote of, It's happening elsewhere throughout the North. Private companies invading the public sphere. Security, they call it. Hmm, interesting. Is this a real-world parallel? Is this? Is this? A lot of this reminds me of private military companies in general. Uh, Iraq and Somali are decent examples of this, but maybe on a smaller scale, depending on some of our before speculations about the series and what exactly Polyakov is looking for, besides this local government power. He had already resigned over the political financial scandal in the Senate in Novgorod, as mentioned above, and the talk of oil is being loudly said, but Lee notices there's no big trade happening. So it kind of seems to be a cover for something, and maybe he was mining for a resource, but it wasn't just oil? I don't know. I know other governments who have hired armies as contractors that wouldn't have to face local laws wherever they deployed these armies, you know, as a gray area, and because of that they committed atrocities while saying they were doing it to stop terror instead, but they were really just like, you know, 
putting colonialism down real hard on the table and exploiting the place. I don't know. I've never heard There's of a couple such places a thing. I could think of. Yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, exploitation of resources in indigenous places and Polyakov cared enough to murder people and build a huge war machine about resources getting away. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a thought. Yeah, it's a, we have like, we'll get to it in a bit, this illustration that really drives it home within the novella. But right now, poet laureate journalist... No, he's, he only describes himself as a poet journalist. He wishes he was a laureate. Oscar Seardson is also at this meeting, and he beckons Lee urgently over the crowd from afar, where he waits in a parlor area. He notices men examining a model of a gun-slash-ship hybrid. Okay, well, you know what? It's here, you know. Real interesting. When you see the <laughs> illustration of it, it's a tank. It looks like a tank. Yeah, it's a tank. Miss- Literally, this is all I'm like, do you have oil for me, sir? Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Scoresby, so glad to see you, he said. Miss Polyakova, may I introduce Mr. Scoresby, the celebrated aeronaut? Celebrated my tail, muttered <laughs> Hester, but the young lady at Sigurdsson's side had Lee's interest at once. She was about 18 years old, in a contrast in every way to the starched Miss Lund. Her cheeks were rosy, her eyes were large and black, her lips were soft and red, her hair was a mass of dark curls, her demon was a mouse. Lee took her hand with pleasure. Okay, so he said it himself, like in this paragraph, that these two women are contrasts to each other, but I I guess, I mean, I don't know if he thought about how he wanted to make such different women with such different agency and stuff. And I don't know if it, this is like a critique or a negative remark. Like, it, I'm going to be critical. And I mean, anyone that listened to our Secret Commonwealth episode could have seen this critique coming just because of some of the things that Pullman tends to do that I don't like. But she's the only female in the story. Olga and Victoria are the only two females in the story. And their characterizations are the following. Olga, 18. Dimwitted. Gullible, beautiful, not very free-thinking, damsel, mouse demon. Victoria Lund, austere, frigid, bitch, won't smile and say hi, swallow demon. I don't know if this is just like a critique on Lee as what his character's doing. I do think it's a critique on storytelling, though. Lee's reward at the end of the novel is that he was nice and not like the other boys, and he told Miss Lund yes to a very vague question, and the customs guy got talking to his girlfriend and was like, yeah, I'll do a favor for this guy. It sounds like he's in trouble. I get it. Like, I still enjoy the story, and it's supposed to be taken lightly, but I just don't like Pullman's go-to with how he writes some of these women. Uh, Look at the flimsy storytelling of the witches, and Lyra's Oxford especially, and in Subtle Knife. When we look at all that, eh, I don't know, it just falls flat. And at least 24 years old, that's the other thing. I don't take his, like, dopey, charismatic flirting that he does and pushing as asshole-ish. I'm not saying he's an asshole at all because, I mean, we know Lee's character from the main series. He's respectful. Uh, He's just a stupid 24-year-old boy that, you know, has enough blood to go either up or down in his body. I get that, but... I don't. I think it's Pullman's writing that's bothering me, not Lee's actions. Yeah, I, I do think it's absolutely Pullman's writing because, like, what we get so little on Victoria and Olga. You know, I, I I don't know if this is supposed to be playing on tropes of how like women are portrayed in like westerns, not well versed in it, but I get the sense that mm-hmm. it's probably not. Like, it just feels 
like this trope i don't know it just feels bizarre especially like contrasted with like characters like dame hannah else mm-hmm. lonsdale lyra mrs coulter like how they're written but as you said you know the, a lot of the witches and how they're written fall flat and I, I don't know, maybe, is it supposed to be Condemnation of 24-year-old Lee Scoresby? I, I just don't think, I don't know, because like our narration style in the His Dark Materials books is, of course, third-person omniscient. We see that Lee doesn't think or talk much in this way. It, it just feels so weird and off. Maybe it's supposed to be an age thing, but maybe it's like just not as, uh, yeah, well, well written. I mean, like we have, what, a third of the story to action sequences and we have this for victoria (laughs) and olga yeah yeah and and to be fair with what you're saying about it playing on the western trope it is in a way okay i mean most western women are either like virgins or villains in these movies right they're either tied to train tracks and they're waiting for their savior or they're widows with guns exactly there's an idea too but that's the thing is like she wasn't even uh tied to a train track you know screaming help me and olga wasn't either and in fact like they each get two scenes and then they're gone yeah olga gets one actually like olga i can see maybe i I, again not too well versed like maybe olga victoria Mm -hmm. not as much i don't know they're just so jarring the way that they're written there's it depends on what movies you're looking at. Like, there's Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which is a spaghetti western where she's, like, a total uh, total Madonna and a whore all rolled into one. Good for her. You know, she's all of it. They, You see a lot of that. But that's the thing is they just don't have characterization. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Lee goes on and he's flirting with this girl or trying to and she plays coy and dumb and all the while he's like, is she being stupid? Is she just pretending to be dumb? She must be flirting with me. She can't be stupid. I'm in the mood to flirt. And it turns out like she is dimwitted. Lee's just horny. And Hester is really funny through all this as well. She's rolling her beady little eyes at him. Yeah. And of course, turns out part of that, I guess, is because Olga is Polyakov's daughter and we have these lines of, Meanwhile, Sigurdsson was pressing close at his other side, saying something that Lee couldn't quite hear and wasn't interested in, because the closer he got to Miss Polyakova, the more he was aware of the delicate floral scent she was wearing, or perhaps it was the fragrance of her hair, or perhaps it was just the sweet fact of her young body pressed against his side. Anyway, Lee was intoxicated. Can't wait till you finish Secret Commonwealth, so we have more to talk about. Anyways, <laughs> hire me audible. <laughs> uh, so, flower scent? I thought that was very interesting. If, if you remember our coverage of the His Dark Materials lantern slides, uh, we did the Subtle Knife lantern slides as well, and Boreal used a fragrant oil that actually became spoiled smelling in those slides. Uh, there's a line that he had stolen it from a bazaar in Damascus, but the Damascus of another world where flowers were bred for the flesh-like exuberance of their scent. And I actually noticed today that in The Subtle Knife, when Will and Lyra go into Boreal's house, it smells of beeswax and flowers. Hmm. 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 And I also wanted to backtrack because Coulter's apartment smells of the fresh roses that she keeps. Uh, Lyra had only imagined it. She could smell Mrs. Coulter's scent again, the roses and the cigarillo smoke and the scent of other women. So 
Rose Oil is a major plot in The Secret Commonwealth. I won't spoil much of that, but it's an interesting thing to consider that Pullman's been laying little fragrance oil hints throughout the books and actually really wanted to write on it. And it's not the only oil we hear of. As you said, this town is laden and rich with oils, but it also makes me think a little bit of the Mulefa oil, the seed pods. Oh, interesting. I just wonder if it's all going to wrap together in the last book of dust, and I have a very strong feeling it will. Oh, wow, you're an optimist. Okay. The whole oil stuff going on in this book. I think it will. I think so. If if my... We're going to get into a little more theorizing as we keep moving forward and we discover what Van Breda has in his cargo, but I think there's more to this book than what many people would think. Like, I've I've already seen a handful of connections that I think are important. Just not regarding women's characterization. Yeah, well, you know, that's not important, Eliana. <laughs> Sigurdsson tells Lee, you know, you could be useful for Polyakov's campaign as they pass the banners that say Polyakov for progress and justice. We have a line uh, again. Yikes. Lee's attitude to fathers was that he preferred to keep them at a distance. Fathers did not want their daughters <laughs> doing what Lee had in mind. But before he mm. could think of an excuse, he found himself in the front row where all the seats were reserved. Oh, Lee. They end up sitting in the front row. Lee's like, I shouldn't be here. I'm not classy enough. These are for rich peoples. He asks Olga what her father's policies are like after being asked to stay by everyone. And she says they're basically about the bad bears, the horrendous bears. And the speeches start and Lee actually falls asleep during that. I I can't tell. On one hand, yes, that tells us about Lee. On the other hand, I was like, Pullman was too lazy to write the whole speech. Yeah, big mood, that too. I mean, it's a novella. I mean, that's the other thing is we're asking very much from him when he just wanted to write 100 pages. That's true. But, but also it makes me wonder, every time Lyra falls asleep in the books, is that just Philip Pullman being like, I didn't hmm. feel like writing this. Fuck you guys. I imagine so. I really imagine so. I wouldn't either. <laughs> we have two bits of the passages that I just wanted to mention because I really thought like this look for Polyakov. His eyes glared out across the hall, and his demon, a kind of hawk Lee didn't recognize, sat on the lectern and raised her wings till they were outspread. Now, what technically, if it's a type of hawk that he doesn't know, this is foreshadowing. Doesn't he meet another hawk that he doesn't recognize in his journeys? Joe Pari's Osprey? Part of the speech that uh, Philip Pullman did feel like writing? By Polyakov, which is friends and citizens, friends and human beings. I don't need to warn you about this insidious invasion. I don't need to warn you because every drop of human blood in your human veins already warns you instinctively that there can be no friendship between humans and bears. And you know precisely what I mean by that. And you know why I have to speak in these terms. There can be no friendship. There should be no friendship. And under my administration, I promise you with my hand on my heart, there will be no friendship with these inhuman and intolerable did someone fuck a bear jesus right (laughs) that's like what i'm starting to get from this did a bear break his heart this is some goldilocks shit but like goldilocks from fables you know it reminds me of plato's teachings a little bit uh just how plato was suspicious of speakers that rouse emotions from audiences because everyone after this speech is like jeering and they're like totally mobbing and he thought mobs are easily misled, which is true. Uh, and people who were trained to respond to reason are more likely to see truth for themselves. And this is really, really apparent in Phaedrus, apparently. Apparently. This is really apparent in Phaedrus. Uh, we get kind of a couple lines 
from 275D through E. You know, Phaedrus, writing shares a strange feature with painting. The offsprings of painting stand there as if they're alive, but if anyone asks them anything, they remain most solemnly silent. The same is true of written words. You'd think they were speaking as if they had some understanding, but if you question anything that's been said because you want to learn more, it continues to signify just that very same thing forever. When it's once been written down, every discourse rolls about everywhere, reaching indiscriminately those with understanding, no less than those who have no business with it, and it doesn't know to whom it should speak and to whom it should not. And when it is faulted and attacked unfairly, it always needs its father's support. Alone, it can neither defend itself nor come to its own support. This could also be seen to be about season eight Game of Thrones discourse. Oh my god. But I do agree with what you're saying. It's something that I've been wondering about, like, why... Oscar keeps being characterized not just as a journalist, but also as a poet, because Plato was very suspicious of poets for the same reasons that you're pointing out. Like, that's something he explicitly calls out. He's like, yeah, I don't know. Art's suspicious. Music's okay, I guess. He's like, music is almost, like, okay and true. He's like, but poets almost. can't trust them uh, for, for, for all the things that you said here. And so that is something that I was wondering as, and, you know, now that, I never realized till reading it aloud how often I noticed before the no friendship, but mm -hmm. I, I, it's obviously because Polyakov doesn't want people and bears affiliating with each other because then they might realize like, oh god, bears are chill, not not just because they're in the north, but chill, and then that's why it's so significant that we have this Lee and Yorick friendship. But again, it makes it sound like someone fucked a bear. Um, <laughs> and he just keeps repeating it. it. It very much sounds like certain ways that a, a pol certain politicians speak, right? With that redundancy. Many politicians. True. I don't know if I'd say certain. I'd say most politicians. But the, <laughs> the speech patterns uh, have been called out for some. But something I found significant, though, in this language that Polyakov uses beyond the friendship is, again, that idea of friends and citizens, friends and human beings, how he starts his address. While we never get to this actual part in the story, and hopefully it doesn't happen, I don't know. Pullman does seem to be alluding to this idea that we've brought up in some of our other episodes for Like a Song of Ice and Fire of ethnic cleansing, and here's how it's defined by the UN in uh, the UN Commission of Experts. They uh, One of the lines was, A purposeful policy designed by one ethnic or religious group to remove, by violent and terror-inspiring means, the civilian population of another ethnic or religious group from certain geographic areas. They go on to explain some of the things that it can pertain include to remove that population are murder, torture, arbitrary arrest and detention, extrajudicial executions, rape and sexual assault, severe physical injury to civilians, confinement of civilian population in ghetto areas, forcible removal, displacement and deportation of civilian population, deliberate military attacks or threats of attacks on civilians and civilian areas, use of civilians as human shields or bear shields, destruction of property, robbery of personal property, attacks on has hospitals, medical personnel and location, um, among others. And of course, genocide is a subset of ethnic cleansing. And as said in this definition from the UN, like, also largely it includes forced migration and intimidation, which is something that we see happen to the bears. I mean, they're being intimidated right now, but we see that forced migration for them later on through forced climate change when, you know, Lord Asriel blows a hole in the door between the worlds. But whatever, whatever. That's a little different like, <laughs> uh, from this instance. But coming back to this, like, and why that language stood out to me 
In 2004, Michael Mann published a book called The Dark Side of Democracy that dives into that whole question and history of ethnic cleansing. And Mann discusses two ends. A little confusing when I say it aloud now that I think about it. Discusses like murderous ethnic cleansing, right? As very much linked to nationalism and the creation the creation of democracies, not where they're already established, right? Because minorities have, should have protection already from the laws and not within authoritarian uh, states necessarily, but where they're being established within that process. Because when it comes together and is linked with nationalism, that's that's why I think Polyakov's language is interesting because then it's about defining in that moment, right? As they try to create this democracy, who is a citizen, and who isn't. And often in the real world, it gets delineated through ethno-religious lines. And in this one, they're bears. Um, Yeah. Anthropomorphic bears. Anthropomorphic bears. There's obviously ethno-religious lines. They're also bears. And, you know, of course, we're coming into this novella with, like, all of the backstory and weight of his dark materials. So we already know, like, the bears. We already know them, like, as a culture and the bear people. And we have the framing to know that what's going on here is wrong. Like, we don't need to be told that. The antagonist, like, is pretty well telegraphed. It's, like, pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, but it's, you know, also reinforced to the reader when Oscar's discussing bear culture. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's great. They have their own rites of passage and, like for adolescents as they like build their own like armor and he's like but they suck now but whatever i'm like what the fuck also side note as to whether or not this is something that pullman is thinking about you know michael mann got his phd at university of oxford which is not oxford university i think i'm pretty sure they're different but anyways we know that pullman hates people like polyakov though based on his twitter account and how outspoken he's been about boris johnson and I do kind of wonder, there's a part of me that wonders, like, after all of these events, you know, it seems like it ends on a great high note of, like, yeah, Lee Scoresby took down Polyakov, and you're like, there's no way, right? Like, you kind of wonder, did he win the election or not? Like, in 2008 mm-hmm. or so, when this novella was published, maybe Pullman would have said, like, yeah, of course Polyakov didn't win his election. And, like, we as a people would be like, yeah, Lee Scoresby took him down. But, like, now in 2020, I'm like... I don't know, Polyakov probably fucking won his election. I think there's a little commentary at the end kind of about that when the lieutenant, you know, he says, hey, what's going to happen to Polyakov? And he says, hey, he'll probably go to court, get tried, get off, and go somewhere else and try to be mayor or something. Okay, Something yeah, along those just lines. like not here, I guess. But like, I'm like, there's mm-hmm. no way he doesn't, like, seeing the way, and this is just such a cynical way of looking at it, I understand, but like seeing the way the world has gone, I'm like... So Polyakov eventually succeeded, right, on this, like, platform. There's no way he fucking did it. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there's no way that he wouldn't. Like, obviously, maybe people could be better, but I don't know. Yeah, but the problem is that usually they're not. Someone fucked a bear. Who fucked the bear? (laughs) That's what I want to know. Why is that the speech? Lee is ready to peace out after the speeches are done, and he's like, this guy's a nutbag. But then the hot daughter shows up again, and she's like, come talk to Papa. And so he does, and Papa tells Lee he needs Lee's gun arm to help deal with someone who's fleeing the law. Capital L, law. Someone who has cargo on hold because they have property belonging to someone else, and it's currently a gray area being explored. And he tells him, all I want you to do is make sure it stays in the warehouse till the lawyers do their work. 
But what about this lawyer, Lee Scarsby, attorney at law? Oh my god. This lawyer, attorney at law, Lee Scarsby, interrupts the proposal by noticing a man on the wall. Uh, too many men to remember this book. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, this guy, so this is really interesting. This guy has a snake demon, which we know means bad usually, and Lee names him the almost mayor's other gunman in his head, and he asks the mayor, why would you need two people to perform your task for you, Mr. Mayor? Which, actually, that's funny, because later on he ends up having two people as gunmen after all, so you learn why he needed two people in the warehouse. Mm. I didn't really think about that till now, but there were two gunmen in the warehouse. Yeah, it always needed Lee two. Lee would have been the downstairs one. Yep. One for each floor. Uh, this gunman, who goes by the name of Morton, is familiar to Lee, but under a different name. He knows him as McConville. I've never seen you before. Then I got keener eyesight than you do. You better not forget that. So that was a fighting word right there. All that. It is. You know, his name's Morton for how salty he is. But also, oh my God. it's funny because his name is McConville because he's a con man. I'm, I'm very sure this is, like, intentional. Completely could not keep my tenses correct for this. And it was, like, I just put, like, Morton Conville, Mort Conville, yeah. Mick Morton throughout the documents. I, I really don't remember. I intend on reading it aloud <laughs> as such later on when I come across them. I can't wait. The uh, hot daughter breaks up the tension. She says something stupid about bears and Lee's like, all right, gotta go. And the very last face he sees is neither the almost mayor nor his daughter nor Morton it's Oscar Sigurdsson looking gleeful at all the tension happening. Back in his room, Lee is reflecting on McConville Morton. Lee de- testified against him, a hired killer who was on trial after a bounty and land dispute. McConville Morton got off, of course, as the bad guys always do. We learn more about him. McConville's bony face and lean frame, his deep-set black eyes and giant hands were unmistakable, and the way he stared across the court for witnesses for the prosecution, with a measuring sort of look, a look of cold, slow, brutal calculation, with nothing human in it at all, was unforgettable. And now here he was on Novi Odense, guarding a politician, and Lee had been damn fool enough to provoke him. I thought something also interesting here was that... uh, he, just like Polyakov, yes. got off for crimes he committed. That's the parallel, right? It's not in they're remaking themselves in a new place, but absolutely. Yeah. They're, they, they're perfect with new for identity. one another. What's weird is when I first read this, not like going in not knowing shit besides it was a Yorick and Lee thing, uh, I thought for a real hot second because of how vague he was, he didn't like talk, he didn't do anything here. I really thought he was somehow going to make this boreal for a second. Oh. Uh, just because there was no description. You know what I mean? Like, they just said he was in a suit and he had a snake demon. And uh, and 35 years before, it might have been too young, but it could have lined up. And I don't know. It's just odd that he has this affinity for evil characters with snake demon who don't play fair. It's something that I was, like, thinking about earlier that it's kind of weird, right? That he's... So the books, right, the historic materials is in a way sort of aggrandizing Satan's role, right, in, in Paradise Lost as this, like, revolutionary. He asks Mary Malone, supposed to play the role of the serpent, right, of tempting Lyra, things like that. And mm-hmm. yet, well, like, why do we keep portraying characters with snake and serpent demons as villains? That's the thing that I don't wonder. It seems counter. It does seem interesting, and maybe it's because it is supposed to, like, be power 
like the the temptation for power maybe so it's my understanding is sometimes snakes can be like cute and you can like snoot the boot from my friend you know our, our good friend san rixian yeah who loves snakes so i don't know but yeah um i also like i know that she's not a jackrabbit right but we live we live most of the story thinking she is i i just feel like it's interesting that lee isn't quite like the i'm in danger picture with mm-hmm. his jackrabbit demon against a rattlesnake and a hawk both of which are predators of jackrabbits mm-hmm. i love that i was thinking that later especially with the way that hester kills the snake yeah uh awesome but before we get there lee hears muffled crying in the hall and he finds out that it's miss victoria Lund. She comes crying to him to ask advice about something very vague, and it's about a question someone's asked her. He gives her the best advice he can do with absolutely no information whatsoever and tells her, follow your heart, and if you want it, you should say yes. You know, like, literally, I'm like, okay. Uh, She ends up shaking his hand, and when she goes, Lee's super confused, but Hester had been whispering with her demon, and Hester's like, it was about a marriage proposal, you big idiot. Yeah, Victoria Lund, she posts on Our Relationships for help on deciding whether or not to say yes to this enormous life decision. That's her. Yeah, yeah, because they don't know how to follow their heart, but they knew the real... Listen to your heart. <sighs> also, like, if you need someone to tell you to marry him, come on, girl. Um, The next morning at breakfast, the other men are making fun of Miss Lund again after she leaves... Vasilev says that she has a sweetheart in the customs office, a hint to us, and the guys shove off of making fun of her. Vasilev asks Lee how he liked the spectacle last night, and Lee implies he was moved, then very unmoved. He prods at Vasilev about Captain Vambrita's cargo, and if it had anything to do with what the almost mayor was asking him to do. Vasilev doesn't know, but says that guy's probably going to win at that one, too. Lee tries to make a bet about it with Vasilev, but Hester starts biting him, so he stops mid-bet and changes his tune, asking Vasilev to come see the ship with him in the harbor yard, and he says that he has to go do an inspection at the tannery and leave, or else he would. Yeah, and then Lee heads down to the harbor. He meets Captain Van Breda once more. Van Breda doesn't remember him because he was super shit show drunk, which, you know... <laughs> relatable mood yeah mood been there this weekend i like how lee's also like but maybe he's just pretending he doesn't because he was so drunk and very embarrassing so either either one van breda is hostile he doesn't trust lee but he's also obviously as pointed out by history they're like maybe he needs a drink to take the edge off and then a bear watches them from not too far off he says you know what captain i'm gonna buy you a drink they go to a bar van breda explains the situation to lee they claim that he has to load his cargo by high tide the next day but they won't open the warehouse and they say he owes the harbor authority money from a made-up fee it's a lie because really they just plan to impound the boat so that polyakov mayor pants can buy it at the auction the cargo is full of actually drilling machinery and rock samples so that was something that really stuck out to me and we did not revisit it in the story right like it was not revisited of why it was so interesting to polyakov and i kind of wondered if this was gob related or dust related somehow and went to the first book and i actually found something interesting uh just maybe it's a parallel or maybe it could be a parallel but when we were in trollison martin lancelius 
told us that there is a branch of an organization called the Northern Progress Exploration Company, which pretends to be searching for minerals, but is really controlled by something called the General Ablation Board of London. And he says that this organization, I happen to know, imports children. It's not generally known in the town. The Norway government is not officially aware of it. And the children don't remain here long. They get taken inland. Also, shout out to the green serpent demon that Lancelius has. Kind of forgot he has one too. Oh, good. It does be... Yeah, right? There's a connection. He's an okay guy. Yeah. He's not a dick. So it makes me wonder, knowing that, and knowing that the mayor resigned over a financial thing in the Senate over in Novgorod, which is where the Lubana, the Lake Lubana witches, have their consul, it just makes me wonder if they might possibly have their own progress board uh, that reports to a government and reports to a general oblation board as well, since we know that the gob are everywhere, dog. I mean, that's what we learn. The magisterium has its roots everywhere. And it also cracks me up that we know Lee isn't very supernaturally tuned into this world, not till he meets Lyra and co. Like, talking bears are one thing, but he, he knows not shit about dust when we get to him. So it's interesting that all this magical stuff could actually be happening around him. Not magic, but, you know, mystical stuff. Uh, unfortunately, we might not go into it too far today, but, like, the floral perfume, the minerals and rocks and mining, and the army that's hired is named after an alloy and the subtle knife uh... looking to get back into power and the government. I don't know. Interesting thoughts. I think it all comes together to kind of be like, maybe it's a nod that Polyakov was looking for more than just oil because we quite obviously have seen the front that no one's fucking looking for oil right now. That's true. No one's looking for oil. There's a front and they're mining metal and then what? It, and then the metal getting used for. I see. Nice. See what I'm thinking? It could yeah. be for the because that alloy is also what the blades are made yeah. of. That the gob uses. Yeah. I think, that's just what I was thinking. I think that's really interesting. And now that would explain things that, uh, let's come back to this also at the end with some of that, uh, some of those uh, little excerpt things that we see ties into that pretty interestingly. But, you know, right now Lee's deciding, you know what, I'm going to help you, Van Breda, load your cargo, help you get out of the city. And Van Breda in return gives Lee some advice. Don't trust Oscar the journalist. And Lee probably, I, I mean, anyone's probably like, no fucking shit. But anyways, Lee leaves. The bear that had been spying on them is waiting for him outside. He asks Lee, so are you going to help this man? And Lee's like, yeah, yeah. I will be. Aw, and the bear responds, he's going to help since Lee's going to help. And he introduces himself. And first we get this description that face to face, he's formidable, young, his body's enormous, and he has small black eyes, quite unreadable. He has ivory colored fur that waved in ripples as the wind played over it. And Lee could feel Hester's little heart beating fast close to his. Is that love? Which is somehow, I think so. That's what Allie sounds like when I hold her in my cat. Sometimes I hear her heartbeat and I hold her plump little body against mine Aww. and I'm just like, I got you. It's okay, little Hester. Because she is my Hester. Anyways, uh, yes, so Yorick says he'll help and he introduces himself as Yorick Burnison because I just spoiled it. I'm sorry. This bear is York Burning Sun. Yes. <sighs> so exciting. Uh-huh. Lee is, like, amazed to meet him. He's like, do you have armor? And Yorick is like, I only have a helm. That's how you know he's a baby. And we get a look. I know, little baby York. And we get a look at it, uh, which just makes me think he only has his helm made, so he can't have been exiled yet. No, I think he just... He's just a... Showed up there. He's, like, in an egg situation. 
So when does he go to Svalbard? I gotta know. God. Uh, so this helm, the bear reached down past the edge of the stone wharf to the top of the flight of the steps and lifted up a battered, clumsy iron sheet of a curious shape and curvature. A chain hung from a corner and Lee blinked with surprise as the bear deftly swung it over his head and hooked the chain from one corner to another under his throat. Suddenly, the metal didn't look clumsy anymore. It fit him perfectly. The bear's black eyes glittered in the depths of two great eye holes. I love people consider their armor crude, as we said earlier, and Lee almost does too, but the second York puts it on, he realizes it fits him perfectly and it's well made for what he needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, okay, this is like my favorite part of the whole novella, where uh, they don't really know what each other's names are because they cannot understand each other's names and accents. And <laughs> first, Yorick's name is uh, Pearly is York Burningson. And then Yorick corrects him and he's like, alright, York Burnison. Still not quite there. Almost. Almost. Slowly. Slowly. And it's funny that York corrects him because it turns out York doesn't quite get it either. He's like, yeah, this is Lee Scaresby. Scarsby and as they get to know each other, you know, they get to closer to their real names as they get closer in their hearts, but best part of the whole novella. Right. <laughs> and so the the real best parts though are not just that, but the next like passage. Okay, this part's also uh, very true. The next bit of time is like literally the most classic stuff. So thirty people have gathered outside at this point as the party is making their way back and they're like, We're gonna get his stuff back. Uh, they're going to the harbor master's office, and we get these lines from Lee, which I've been practicing. So don't worry, do Eliana. It. I can't do. I'll do the Lee stuff for you. I can't do accents. I know. I can though. Are you ready? Because I'm, I'm ready. gonna blow your mind. I'm gonna be Mister Aggard. So Lee says to Yorick, "Thanks. Now I'm gonna be spinning a yarn, York Burnison. So my attention will kind of be occupied, and I'd be obliged if you keep an eye out for any trouble." Love it. Love it. Uh, Lee approaches Mr. Aggard and lays it on thick, saying he's representing Mr. Van Breda and all this as his lawyer and gets doing his sweet talking, which we actually, again, we talked about this when the show was on. All right, here I go. I won't be as good as Lin Manuel, but I'll give it my best. Well, Mr. Aggard, said Lee, improvising happily, I think you should keep your law up to date. The letter is correct as far as the merchant ship in Act 11.3035 is concerned. Absolutely correct, sir. And I congratulate you on this terse and manly eloquence with which you've expressed this fragment of correspondence. However, let me remind you that a subsequent piece of legislation, the Carriage of Goods and Cargoes Act of 1911, Part 3, Subsection 4, miscellaneous provisions specifically and by name, supersedes the Merchant Shipping Act by stating that the right of a carrier to load his cargo once the bill of laden has been signed and countersigned, and I stress that, shall in no way be be impeded, obstructed, or prevented by any provision of the previous act, notwithstanding any local interpretations that shall be put in place. Now, Captain Van Breda, have you such a bill laden? Yes, Mr. Scoresby, I have. And is it signed and countersigned? It is. Then, Mr. Agard, I invite you to stand aside, sir, and let my client go about his lawful business. There's also this a great moment right after this happens where Hester like congratulates Lee and the term she uses is like on his oratorical flamboyancy. Yeah, he called uh Polyakov's speech that earlier. He's like, it was quite the oratorical flamboyancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
these yards all over. We asked Van Breda if he has any firearms on deck as they pass their first boss level. And he says just one that he's never had to fire. And they make their way toward the ship but are met by five men. One who, has, who Hester warns Lee is now cocking his gun. Lee tells the boy holding the gun to drop it, and he does, but another shoots, although it misses, and travels over their head past a crowd of people who scream, for, you know, quite obvious reasons, far behind them. And then Lee shot, fires a shot in response, which didn't miss. He aimed for the guy's hip, and the bullet hits. He falls into the water, and Lee's like, well, I guess you gotta go get your friend and save him, because he's not gonna be able to swim back if they don't. But turns out we have a problem. Because as we know about this hammer pistol from earlier, Lee only has one shot left. That's why you gotta count your rounds. I learned this from Archer, you know? And, like, <laughs> that was it. He's got one shot left. That is one thing I will always commend and pride Pullman on, that he pays attention to when you have one shot left. And this actually, not to make us sad, but, you know, this isn't the only time in Lee's story he only has one shot left. Wow! Because at the very end of his journey, when he has this rifle, actually, this very rifle that he's getting, uh, he has one shot left. And he says to Hester, shame to die with one bullet left, though. And he aims it up at the Zeppelin itself and shoots it. That's my, that's my man. <laughs> Damn. He grabs the gun dropped by the younger guy, but it's bent to shit from the fall and it'd backfire if it had been shot again. So Lee sadly chucks it into the sea. They come close to the ship, finally, but as they do, something appears in the waterfront, and it is the huge gas-powered machine, the gas gun, the Larson Magnese people have been showing off, the monstrous one, and the steel wheels and the half-track are grinding. York is like, I can take care of this one, and it's actually a really cute exchange. He's like, a gun? And Lee's like, yup. And he goes, I do this, and he runs off silently into the alley. <laughs> Lee's like, okay, bye. Uh, yeah, Lee once more asks for the rifle from Van Breda, and the gun machine has stopped. They hear a man, sh they hear a man shouting into a horn at them, but they can't make out the words. Van Breda gets the gun, and apparently it's a very gorgeous rifle. It's a Winchester, so Lee's, like, very jazzy. He's like, wow, amazing. He loads up, <laughs> and they make for the war warehouse, but the gun machine, aka the tank, based on this illustration that we have in the novella, stops moving, or starts moving, and then, out of nowhere... Yorick bursts from an alley and he smashes into it and then the gun blast the gun blast pisses him off so he just keeps fucking it up. Apparently I mean I guess that makes sense if they can like cut their metal with their, their claws, but he's just out here, he's just Yeah. It's a bear versus gun. What else could it you just want? pissed him off more? Yeah. Yeah. As they make toward the warehouse, Lee thinks he sees something in one of the windows, but keeps going anyway while Hester checks into it and keeps a lookout. He asks Van Breda the whereabouts of the booty, and uh, Hester tells Lee she thinks the sharpshooter is definitely in a warehouse, and she warns him it might be Morton or McConville, and Lee's like, I already knew it would be. <laughs> I knew that before we got here. He instructs Van Breda and his team to lay low while they deal with the gunmen and just work on getting ready to peace out. And he and Yorick rush in to deal with them. He's not really sure if it's one or two, but one of them shoots immediately, clipping his shoulder, partially giving away his position, which answers the one or two question. There is one upstairs and one downstairs. They split up. Yorick takes down the downstairs guy, and Lee goes upstairs to deal with Morton McConaughey. 
They play a game of hide-and-seek until Mick whatever hits Lee with a bullet. It passes through him, it doesn't find a bone, but sure isn't pretty. It's almost over. Mick Mortonville gives this villain speech telling Lee how he remembers him and that he's had him on his list to deal with eventually, and then he admits to other awful, cruel crimes, some of which Lee also had seen or heard of, that he committed against evil pe- or against innocent people. Yeah, and because he's, like, giving this speech and it's just, like, taking all this time and he's kind of basically giving away his position, I love that Lee's, like, McCortonville. He's like, oh, he's not really that smart, I guess. Just going out there and giving mm-hmm. away his position like this. And I'm like, yeah, actually, when I think about it, that is pretty consistent with the character that we hear about him earlier on yeah. in the story. Because, like, he's, I mean, like, if he was smart, he wouldn't be out here fucking just murdering people in broad daylight in front of everyone and being like, this is not gonna get me in trouble right like he wasn't he just wasn't powerful and important enough to be the kind of person who would get away with it you know yeah polyakov could not at all he couldn't yeah you know well lee is kind of bleeding out in a pile of fish oil right now he's leaned up against fish oil barrels that got shot huddled with hester who's also injured and hurt Mick Con Mortonville says he's going to draw Lee's death out longer than the last guy's, which was 30 minutes, and his demon sets out to strike first against Lee. And this is interesting. I, Hester pounces on it, bites into it, tears into it to save them. She drags and kicks, and she pulls his demon away from him before she kills him. Uh, and Mick Mortonville is all like, oh, you horrible bitch of a demon and he's like cursing because she pulls his demon away from him and i wonder if maybe she was separating them too not just like injuring it yeah she absolutely was because they were like well you know that's an idea that's an interesting idea that you would give us on how to hurt someone mccourtville yeah. what if we did that to you I, I, yeah i think that's intentional and it's meant to be a sort of like cool karmic thing before they execute cool. interesting him. Very interesting. And then he he does execute. He does end up shooting. What's his face though? He yeah, doesn't die from he separation. He does shoot him. No, he does shoot him. And when it's over, he holds Hester tight and he says, "We better move before we're completely covered in the blood and the fish oil." Meanwhile, outside, Polyakov is at the head of a mob. He seems to be trying to guide them in to attack the Schooner, which, of course, like we said, that mob mentality earlier. Yorick is holding them back. Lee gets over to his side and he's like, hey, buddy, the big trouble's gone. And then he pretty much passes out. Yorick catches him and sets him back up by the back of his shirt. No friendship. I know, right? It's very cute. And then the Larson Manganese attempt to kind of come on in and Yorick bolts into the water to swim away as they attempt to disarm Lee. But at the very same time, someone from behind Lee shows up and says that Lee is under arrest. Oh no, it's Lieutenant Hogland. Lee protests that they will stop Van Breda from leaving, though, if he goes with the lieutenant. And the lieutenant's like, I'll take care of it, and orders everyone to leave. And if anyone is here when I come back, all of you are under arrest. And everyone disperses except for Polyakov. He's like, my free speech. And (laughs) my rights. This is not an actual demonstration. Protesting in a pandemic? Yeah, he, yeah. actually, though, that's that's Polyakov. He's saying this is an outrage. Uh, Hoglund's demon and Hester are quietly chatting now during this. Hoglund says he'll arrest Polyakov, too, if he doesn't get the fuck out within two minutes. And then, again, Polyakov says, my free speech. Meanwhile, Van Breda <laughs> says goodbye, giving Lee his rifle as a gift for his help. And Lee is like, ooh, 
my second amendment rights. He's like my second waifu. <laughs> and the Hogland orders, you know, you know what? What if you put both the rifle and the pistol you have down? And he's like, okay, fine. Then promptly he passes out again for a hot second. Whatever. This, it's fine. That's what. That's how these books go. People fall asleep. They pass out. That's normal. All right. <laughs> he comes to the officers supporting him and he's told to follow along. Yeah, but he's not going to the customs office, which is very confusing for him. He is led instead to a ship in the navy and white customs colors at the end of the launch where he sits in the cabin relatively close to his weapons that are set down next to him. And he's like, huh, why is he letting my weapons be by me? Hogland then tells him to take his equipment and he's very confused. He does. And he explains he's taking them to the sea company depot where his balloon is filled up and full, ready for takeoff. And they will meet Yorick, who's following and has something to give to Lee, too. And Lee's like, wow, what a crazy morning. Usually I'd probably be dead by now. <laughs> and the Hogland tells him, like, the fact is this, Mr. Scoresby, there's a struggle going on throughout the northern lands of which this little island is a microcosm. On one hand, there are the properly constituted civil institutions such as the Customs and Revenue Board. And on the other, the uncontrolled power of the large private companies such as Larson Manganese, which are dominating more and more of the public life, though they are not subject to any form of democratic sanction. If Mr. Polyakov wins this election, he will make life easier for Larson Manganese and its fellows and worse for the people of Novi Odense. He continues explaining that this was basically a cover story, the upfront story for the anti-bear campaign, but that he'd be using it to distract people while enacting his further plans. Hmm. Interesting. We kind of see how someone can have this exact kind of political campaign, especially as a contractor, when you think about some of the characters like Mrs. Coulter. In real life, but also... You know, like this, as as uh, Hogland says, right? This is a microcosm, not only of things that are happening in the northern lands, but of the sorts of ideas that, I mean, Philip Pullman has been exploring this whole time, right? Like, this is something that he loves. He's like, oh, that hidden but interconnected secret boar, and in his dark materials, it was in heaven. You know, really big scale, probably the biggest scale that he could have done it. And then next, right, we have also my assumption, not having read it, but. From what I can surmise, the, those secret powers that be, right, in the secret commonwealth, mm -hmm. I assume. And this is that same idea, but but small. Yeah, no spoilers, but yes, there is. Even in Oxford, there's this little microcosm happening of uh, the, the government and the private contractors. And I really do feel some tie-ins with this novel and the secret commonwealth. I'm really excited to explore them with you. Yeah, but someday. I almost ordered it recently because i was like i, ah. I wanted to but then um i didn't order sandwiches from that place so then i didn't get the books anyways so lee assesses the damage done to him once they're in the bathroom his ears a little messed up and there's no growing that back but uh the shoulder's gonna heal thanks to the clean shot the officer knocks on the door saying the medicine man has cometh and lo and behold no, not low. It's Yorick. Uh, Yorick shows up and he has blood moss in his hand. Blood moss? Blood moss in his hands. In his paws. To attach to, or his paws, his bare hands. Uh, to bare attach hands. to Lee's wounds. Yes, exactly. A second amendment. And of course, who else shows up before Lee leaves but Oscar Sigurdsson? He wants an interview with the town hero. And Lee's like, yeah, sure. And invites him somewhere way more private to the waterfront to talk. 
He asks Sigurdsson if he can see that ship over there on the horizon. And as Sigurdsson looks, Lee gives him a swift kick to the asshole into the water. He turns to go, and another guy from the story who you probably don't even remember, Vasilev, shows up, saying Polyakov and Larson Manganese are on their way, ready to fight, and also they want to kill the bear. Lee asks Yorick if he's ever been in a balloon, and he and Yorick finally correct each other on their name pronunciations and say goodbye to people. You ready, Yorick? He said. This is strange to me, said the bear, but I will trust you. You are a man of the Arctic. I am. How's that? Your demon is an arctic hare. A what? said Hester. I thought I was a damn jackrabbit. Arctic hare. Said Yorick briefly. And Hogland nodded. Lee gives Lieutenant Hogland his best thanks and asks how he knew where to find Lee or who Lee was. Hogland says, well, you can thank Miss Victoria Lund, who is now his fiance. Pew, pew, pew. Thanks, Lee. Yep. That was it. That was that was the uh, closure for Victoria Lund, everyone. That, that really uh, was it. <laughs> but I did find something that's a deeper parallel. So this might make you sad. Are you ready to be sad? I'm ready to be sad. When Lee checks his luggage, Victoria left a sprig of lavender on top for him. And Hester made fun of him for smelling it deeply, but I wanted to pair that with when Lee Scoresby dies. This is rude. Uh, Yorick, I know, I, you're telling me, you know I'm going to cry. Uh, when Lee dies, we get the passage when Yorick goes to find him after speaking to Serafina. The boulder was pitted and chipped with bullet marks. Everything the witch had told him was true. And in confirmation, a little arctic flower... A purple saxifrage blossomed improbably where the witch had planted it as a signal in the cranny of the rock. This is rude. Yep. Yep. I thought that was rude. Um, Yeah, so I thought that was a parallel for sure. There's no way that Pullman chose two purple flowers to mark the beginning of Lee Scoresby's adventures and the end of them. Damn. Yeah. Whoa. Shit. Lee. Yeah. Damn. Did I fuck you up? Uh, it's fine. This is fine. 35 we years. We get another passage that I want to, like, throw myself off a building. Yeah, we get the passage where- Off a balloon? <sighs> Lee, yeah, I want to throw myself off a balloon. Lee left her to it and checked the barometer. The gas pressure gauge and the compass again. Not that the compass was much of a help in these latitudes. And then he took out the rifle- looked it over thoroughly, cleaned it, and oiled it with a new can of machine oil, which he found to his surprise in the toolbox. He wrapped it up again carefully before making sure it was safely strapped to a stanchion. He'd learnt his lesson. He looked after it well for the rest of his life, and thirty-five years later the Winchester was in his hands when he died, with one last shot. Wow. (sighs) Yep. Philip Pullman ripped my heart out. But the last passage is happy. Yeah, that's true. This one's cute. This is fine. Hester and Lee discuss the end of their trip, right? And we close the book out with something happier. Well, all right then. Finding out that you're an Arctic hare, that's surprising. Damn, I was surprised. Surprised? Why the hell were you surprised? I ain't surprised, said Hester. Yorick's right. I always knew I had more class than a rabbit. 
<laughs> it's the best line in the whole story. <laughs> I always knew I had more class than a rabbit. Other than other than Yorick Burningson, uh, I don't know. Oh, that is up there. That is up there. Uh, I I don't know what's wrong with rabbits. I don't think anything's wrong with rabbits. It was cute though. Like they're low class. Yeah, I know what she meant. She's like, I, I'm a rich bitch. I just wasn't sure if there was something I'm missing. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> about rabbits. Rabbit stands. Can you speak up? Am I uncultured? <laughs> rabbit stands in the club tonight. Explain rabbits to me, please. So um, it's not really the end of the book, right? We still have a handful of slides at the end of the book that we can chat about. Uh, not too much crazy stuff in this one, but I really love that he still put these scrap notes in. And from what we were discussing earlier, uh, it seems that possibly these were added in the 2017 edition and not the 2008 edition. So a lot of these letters might be stuff he put in before he wrote La Belle Sauvage, which we're about to talk about soon too, or during when he was writing La Belle Sauvage. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like, that would make sense, considering that the hard copy I'm holding is, like, advertising again, the Book of Dust. Yeah. Now these things, as you said, reference stuff from there. Um, we talked about some of the, the geography. I do also like, you know, speaking of themes that Pullman's interested in and how they carry out throughout the books, like, I kind of wonder, like, would Oscar Searson like, have Payton Lee in a better light, right? Like, as quote-unquote town hero if Lee hadn't kicked him in the water. Because we have this, like, little excerpt from, like, how Oscar, like, writes a news clipping or a clipping from Oscar uh, regarding this incident, painting Lee and Yorick as, like, villain and accomplice yeah. bear, flee by balloon. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah, he paints them like as villains. I wonder like would it would they have been in a better light if like Lee didn't kick him in the water? But it's also very much, you know, how Pullman's interested in again, like those secrets and like how things are portrayed, mm -hmm. how stories end up getting twisted over time, uh, based on the authority figures, right, telling them, etc. etc. Uh there's also a thing towards the end where Oscar kind of says like that Polyakov is still the leading candidate and who writes in a current edition of the Novi Odense Courier and Telegraph. So that kind of uh, bodes to what we were wondering, like, does he get elected or not? Maybe. He was a leading well, candidate still. I'd also say he probably gets elected because we see the current state of things and how bad they are in the main series. And, like, obviously yeah. corrupt government is happening. So it, it makes sense. Yeah, true. And if, I, I, as uh, Hoglund said, if not here, somewhere else. Yeah. I love the letters we get. Um... And yes. This one is, we won't go too far into it, but we get this letter to Tom from Lyra. And it just says to Tom. And Lyra tells Tom she can't make her peace about the alethiometer without people knowing. We end up realizing it's about a thesis, uh, a, a dissertation, a thesis that she's been working on, right? And she says, ideally, there'd be a whole panel of people to judge that type of work as well. But she only has Dame Hannah to examine it. And she's kind of getting past Dan Dame Hannah's knowledge. She says that econ as a body of work is nice and clear and that she has a good subject and lots of personal knowledge. I'm guessing from Lee and documents. And she says that her writing... Having gone there. <laughs> she right. She says that her writing is about developments in patterns of trade in the European Arctic region, with particular reference to independent cargo balloon carriage from 1950 to 1970. Ta-da! <laughs> 
The timeline's really interesting there, though. Uh, it's very, yeah, it's very obviously about Lee's work is what inspired her here. But this has to be a letter to Thomas Nugent, who is the head of an organization called Oakley Street in La Belle Sauvage. And uh, unfortunately, humans age, so I don't believe he is in the secret commonwealth. But it talks about the alethiometer reading so candidly. It almost secures it. Yeah. That's true, and also knowing like about Dame Hannah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Lyra wouldn't just send that to anyone, so that is very clearly from Thomas Nugent, who was also the Chancellor of- formerly the Lord Chancellor of England. Sorry, I don't understand the political systems fully. And then, of course, next we get a letter to Malcolm from Lyra. She needs some dissertation help, specifically regarding bibliographies on rare clippings from newspapers that, you know, people in England would be able to get their hands on, especially because they're personal clippings and they don't have the internet yet. Yeah, and I love that this letter is very vague to Malcolm. Um, If you recognize Malcolm's name at all, you might have read the Lyra's Oxford story that I believe also has some Malcolm letters in it, does it? Or does she see Malcolm? Am I making that up? I haven't read it in a while. It's only 15 pages. I guess I could reach for my phone. <laughs> but uh, Malcolm is a uh, professor and she very vaguely speaks to him. But if you've read La Belle Sauvage, Malcolm was a very big player in La Belle Sauvage and he would understand pretty much anything she's saying. So I think that's really funny. Because at this point in the story, she very obviously is younger and likely does not know, like, anything about Malcolm Polstead, just that he's a professor that annoys her. I kind of think it's just like a funny, weird, like, meeting of worlds. Must be something Philip Pullman thinks about. I mean, like, you know, the next page, right, is her filing for that master's uh, in philosophy and economic history. Yeah, it's 28,950 words. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, that that tracks, right? And, um, but I guess she's candidate number 23, which is cute. And this all goes together, right, of course, with some of that previous, those previous letters. I do like that we learned that Lyra is going to go get her master's because, of course, Philip Pullman, academic, yeah, right? would have her do that. Like, of course he did. <laughs> he just has to have the knowledge keep on moving. Of course. And, like, also, I think economic history is interesting. Like, as you pointed out, a lot of it has to do with her personal connection with Lee. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Are we supposed to see this as a cover? Is this, like, a cover for her to be able to stay in academia by the alethiometer? Or not? Um, Or is it something? I mean, obviously, she's probably actually somewhat interested in it. I mean, like, it makes sense, right? Like, there's a lot there in terms of you know, understanding how story and the powers coalesce in the North, how her world mm-hmm. came to be what it is, especially the things that she experienced and trying to track down and maybe take down some of, like, how that power structure was built. Like, I, the, the uh, as I'm sure all of you know in the book that I haven't read, right, those power structures that have been there for hundreds of years don't fall down overnight. And, you know, Lyra trying to understand the things that happened in the North, and I'm sure there's a lot there to argue about reading the signs and patterns when it comes to 
economics, understanding meaning and the flow of capital and power, right? I think that all makes sense in terms of picking economic history. And of course, history is a story, just like whatever the alethiometer would tell her. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, is it a cover? I mean, I'm not going to answer this in full because I wouldn't want to spoil you. Uh, Thank you for respecting me. You're welcome. I would never spoil you like I did that one time when I revealed that beeps, demon is beep when it settles. And uh, (laughs) uh, but I would say, like, on that note, I would say that you are on to something. And I do think those themes are very much so explored. And Lyra in the Secret Commonwealth is a 20-year-old young woman. And I think you're going to see that the journeys in the North definitely did have an after effect on her, right? Like she has grown uh, from a child into a young woman. She understands the way the world works more. And in some ways she doesn't. She understands the way the world works even less in some ways now. Um, It's just like... Also true of growing up. Yeah, it's it's very much so a big metaphor for growing up. I think... uh, I think when you get into that book, finally, it will throw you because it's not tonally what I expected at first. And I have grown to love it, but it's very much so a grown up book. It's very much so this is the after. And Lyra's a little more analytical, I think, as an adult now. And her brain processes more functionally. And I think these notes that we see right here also kind of show that, that she, as she says to Malcolm, like it's a more scientific slash clean process for her to go through with this where um as a kid we know reading the alethiometer is different than being an adult right so as a kid she could just it was just like when will would find the notch with the knife and it just felt Mm. right in its hand for lyra reading the alethiometer is not easy when you're not a kid anymore it was easy it was like finding that notch she would just find the third rung below and figure it out and she would just get it and as an like the second her and Will canoodled, you know, like that no longer the same. Um, so I almost wonder if it's just like your entire mindset changes and it is a big metaphor for adulthood. And I think we'll have more to talk about that when you read The Secret Commonwealth coming soon. It actually, I think, is coming soon. I've been itching for it lately. So I think you should do it. I think you should pull the trigger if you have one shot left, I mean. Mom's spaghetti. Oh my god, knees weak. Winchester on his chest already. Lee's spaghetti. <laughs> Lee's spaghetti hey, western. This is a Lee's spaghetti western was a great episode. I'm so glad we read this again, like together and figured it out. And I think we made some big ground. I think so. I think we covered quite a bit. Yeah, for a hundred page book. Holy crap. With illustrations. With illustrations. And the, te- and the text is pretty large, you know? <laughs> so a 50 page book. Yeah, it took me like an hour <laughs> and a half to read this. It's pretty big and like 30 pages of it is just like action sequences, which <laughs> you guys, I, I'm going to be real. I don't, I don't love written action sequences unless there's like actually something really going on there. I love great choreographed fight scenes. Pacific Rim is one of my top five movies. Not a joke. Very serious. Pacific Rim 2 is dead to me and garbage. Pacific Rim 1, amazing mm-hmm. masterpiece. But Wow. Well, no, I know Written that's your favorite. Written action sequences don't do anything for me. Yeah, this was fun. It was definitely like a side novella, though. Oh, absolutely. But it, it was good. And, then, and as you pointed out, there's a lot that pro- connects it to like the main story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, 
Thanks so much for listening to this month's Patreon episode, Once Upon a Time in the North, the love story that blossomed and bloomed for Yorick, Burning Sun, and uh, Lee Scaresby. I mean, kind of. No friendships. Only <laughs> romance. <laughs> Make sure to tune in this week as we release chapters 7 and 8 of The Subtle Knife. Yes, Rolls Royce, which does have a hyphen in it, is one of the chapters. Eliana has confirmed the hyphen for us. And uh, we'll be back with a Song of Ice and Fire next week. We'll probably have it a Song of Ice and Fire themed episode for Patreon next month for our stranger tier and above patrons. Thanks again for supporting us. We really, really appreciate it in these times. Yes. Thank you very much, everyone. And of course, take care. Be safe. Absolutely. Bye. Stay well oiled. Oh, my God. Bye. <laughs>